Revelation 22, verse 1, the final chapter, this amazing book. And he showed me a pure river, the water of life. When we think of the water of life, of course, we, we look at it through the lens of all of Scripture. And it's surely a picture of the full work of the Holy Spirit, which we have in part right now. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is upon us. The Holy Spirit is in us. The Holy Spirit works out of us. But no one save Jesus while he was here as God has seen the full work and the full measure of what it would be like to be bathed completely, totally, and fully in the work of the Spirit. And he showed me a pure river of the water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And so you can get the picture. This is really a picture of the work of the Trinity. You have the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Son, the work of Father God, the throne of God, the Lamb of God, the water of life, all three persons of the Holy Trinity at work coming forth from the throne of God. And in the middle of its street and on the other side of the river was the tree of life. It has always been an an interesting fact when you look at how the book begins, and I mean the whole book, the Bible, and how it ends, we find the same tree. And the first time it was a temptation and a failure, and this time it is glory and is success. Which bore 12 fruits, And of course, you could look at it from the 12 fruits that are the 12 tribes and all of the children of Israel. Remember the tribulation saints and surely the 12 apostles and the fullness of those represented. Uh, There now in heaven is a great multitude and each tree yielding its fruit every month. Now, I don't know how many fruit trees you have at your house. Uh, We now have a few. We, We were devoid of fruit trees when we moved into Lomita, but we... We went and, and purchased a couple, and so we have three fruit trees in our backyard. And I can tell you this, they do not produce fruit every month. You can stare at them all you want. They're not going to produce fruit every month. So this is a very fruitful tree orchard. Now, if you remember, the whole goal of the body of Christ, according to Jesus, is that we would bear fruit and then more fruit and then much fruit, and that that fruit would remain. Amen? So here is that remaining fruit. A fruit that lasts in heaven. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And remember that the Lord came first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And as we look at the world today, it has got to break the heart of God to see what's going on in the nations of the world. And the answer is not going to be political. It never has been. It never will be. The answer is found in Jesus Christ. He alone is the way, and He alone is the truth, and He alone is the life, exactly as He said, and no one comes to the Father but by Him. And because of that, the ills that we see in our world, God doesn't start wars. God doesn't cause envy. He doesn't cause strife. He doesn't cause enmity, brother against brother, man against man. He doesn't cause division. None of these things that we see in our world that divides mankind are the result of a single thing save sin and its chief instigator, Satan himself. And so every injustice, every terrorist activity, every innocent person who's killed or murdered, all of it breaks the heart of God. But when we get to heaven, when we finally reach that eternal state, there's going to be no more sin. And because of it, the nations will finally be healed. Everything that divides us will be gone. And there should be no more curse. And the curse, of course, was the curse of sin. 
and its penalty, death. And what came forth from that curse of sin and its penalty, death, was hard labor. Anybody looking forward to not working for eternity? Oh, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. Anybody looking forward to not being sick ever again? No more cold. No more spring cold, summer cold, no more colds. No more of the produce of what sin did. You see, because when Adam sinned, he began the process of dying. He began the process. He did not instantaneously die. The curse came upon him. God says, look, you're not going to be able to live forever now. And so you're, you're going to have a lifespan. But if you remember before the flood, it was a really long lifespan. People lived a long time. Methuselah almost made it to a thousand years. But ever since then, after the flood came, man ultimately finds, as we find Moses writing as the psalmist, he writes that in, in the days of Moses, that the number of the days of man would be 70 and 80 if by reason of strength, and that's pretty much where we're stuck. Amen? But no more. The curse will be lifted. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servant shall serve him. And so as you keep in mind these chapters that we've already gone through, but especially these last couple of chapters, you find this incredible picture of the heavenlies have now opened up. But remember what they are. They are the vision that is still for us as we here are gathered tonight. It's still future. This is not next week. At the very, very, very least, at the very least, this would be roughly 1,007 years from right now. Because there needs to be a rapture of the church. The the church needs to go home. There needs to be seven years of tribulation, a 1,000-year millennial reign on this earth, and then this time. So this is still yet future. But can I tell you, in God's time... It's a blink of an eye. Because it's relative to God's time scale, which is eternal. God lives outside of space. He lives outside of time. He doesn't dwell in it. He's outside of it. Therefore, he can create it. And so as we sit here, the Lord is imminently uh, on the path to set those things in motion. Now, here's the problem. And it is to this I want to speak for a little bit. Too very often, people get way too precise, and in fact, they turn their attention to pointing out dates and saying the Lord's going to return even by 1973 or by 1984 or by, as has been done so very often, by a certain date and time. Some people go so far as to actually name the date. Good old Harold Camping was famous for that. Uh, He's now home with the Lord, thankfully. No more fake predictions. Um, But here's the thing. Scripture is very clear. We are not going to know the day or the hour. We will not know when that is. So the moment someone says they know, I can assure you they don't. Because Scripture says you can't. And so any time anyone comes, I don't care how great a theologian they are, if they've written 10 books and they say, well, I have computed and I figured out by this chronology or that chronology or this set of methods or that set of methods or I found a secret code within the Bible and it says this, the moment they tell me they know the day or the hour, I immediately know they're a false prophet because of what Jesus said. And I will give you a case in point. But before we get there, Matthew 24, verse 36. No one, the words of Jesus, Matthew 24, 36, and verse 42, no one knows the day or the hour. And he's speaking of the coming, his own coming. The angels in heaven don't know. The Son himself doesn't know. That would be him. And he's speaking of in his humanity. Because that would have been human Knowledge that could have been given to other human beings. And somehow in the mind of God, 
Jesus, just like he put off his Godhead, put off some information that he had rights to as God, but did not know it. Only the Father knows. So be on guard. You do not know when the Lord comes. Period, end of conversation. Back in the early 1800s, William Miller uh, was a man who got saved during the Great Awakening. The churches of northeastern America were growing unbelievably rapidly. During that period of time, outdoor preaching was the norm. Uh, you had the Wesleys, the Whitfield, you had all, all of this incredible thing that's going on uh, in the United States of America. People would literally sit for hours in rainstorms and listen to the gospel being preached. And people became saved and churches got planted. And then they started to delve into things other than walking with the Lord and living out their lives godly in Christ Jesus, they began to dig in specifically to the prophecies of Daniel. Uh, Miller began to postulate, he took Usher's chronology uh, of a 7,000-year cycle of the entire creation, believing that that was true, that was a starting point. And so he mapped it out, and he came to the conclusion that in 1843 or 1844 uh, that the Lord would return. He then more precisely announced that on October 24th, 1864, that the Lord would return. And he began to preach that message. In our day and time, the dude would have had a serious blog presence. He'd have had a Facebook page that would have had like billions of hits on it. And he would be pumping out little daily you know, Facebook updates. Well, it's only that'd be a countdown clock on there. And what happened during that day and time, he got so popular because he preached this solitary message that any theologian could have said, look, there's no way you can know that. But they didn't. The church began to be silent because he would draw huge crowds. And these huge crowds would come and and they would be convinced that, you know, this man must be hearing from the Lord because the huge crowds came. Can I tell you, there's a lot of churches that draw huge crowds that are teaching heresy. And they got their own TV programs. And they got millions upon millions upon hundreds of millions of dollars. And they live lifestyles that are a shame to God. The financial panic of 1839 ensued, which contributed to the belief that Miller might be right. And here's where I want to speak to you tonight. We could be tempted to look at the world that we are in and say, man, it's going to be next week. Now, it might be next week. And let me be very careful and extremely precise in speaking to you. It is possible because nothing else needs to happen for the Lord to snatch his church home. It could happen next week. But we do not know that. We do not know that. And during that time, in, in 1839, the, the U.S. economy tanked. It went into the... And so in the newspapers, they began to print daily the distance between Miller's prediction of the end of the world and financial charts, and banking information, and stock market listings. It was right there. And I think we need to learn something from this. We need to be very careful to still be about our Father's business. There are people's lives at stake when we make stupid, arrogant, ignorant predictions. Could the Lord return right this moment for his church. Yes, absolutely he could. We could hear that trumpet, and we who are alive and remain could meet him in the air even tonight. But there's still work for us to do as a church. And so we live as though he would come for us right now. But we plan as though we are going to live out our entire natural lives and we are going to be profitable from this day to the last breath. Amen? Because otherwise, we cause people to sit around and, well, you know, I, the Lord's going to come back, so I'm just not going to pay my taxes. 
the Lord's going to come back, so I'm not actually going to get my dental work done. I, I had a guy tell me that. Stone truth. I asked him, I said, you know, it's, you know, do you need help with that? You find it? Oh, no, there's no reason. You know, the uh, Lord's coming back. We all can name a few people who are in prison right now because they believed that the Lord was going to come back. And they stopped paying federal income tax. Look, we need to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, unto God the things that are God's. But Miller had people standing on mountaintops. Churches boarded up with the keys hanging in the lock on the front door with a note to the heathens, it's yours. There's people in the church that are doing the same thing. The reason we're going to meet at Wilson Park is because we got work to do Saturday. It's called Preaching Christ Crucified. The reason we have missionaries right now, this very moment, in India, is because we have work to do because people are perishing. Our goal is not to predict when these things will happen. Our goal is to be ready at every moment for them happening. And so as we read these things, don't get so overly confident in, in, in all of this that you, you know, well, I, it's gonna, no way is it going to be more than a week. You know, it could be, you know, it's going to be two weeks from now. Oh, I hope and pray for me. But you know what? I don't hope and pray that for all the lost people on this earth. And so as a pastor, I kind of hope the Lord tarries a while. I really do. For me, for you, for those of us who love the Lord, I, if there could be like a selective rapture and we could kind of go first, that, you know, that'd be okay. You know, just kind of like a preview or something so everybody get the idea. That's not found in your Bible, by the way, so don't <laughs> erase that from this, delete that from the tape. Because some people are like that. Please be careful, brothers and sisters, because that heretical event, known as the Great Disappointment, spurned two of the largest cults in existence in the world today. Jehovah's Witness and Seventh-day Adventism. They both picked up on that exact theme. Well, they couldn't have been that wrong, so maybe we just need to investigate and see when that's going to be. So Ellen G. White in Seventh-day Adventism taught her own form of when the Lord would return and who he would return for. Jehovah's Witnesses do the same thing. They falsely predicted the return of the Lord, not once, not twice, but 14 times. Be careful about setting dates. It always turns out poorly. Instead, be busy about our Father's business. Here's one thing I can tell you. We know what season it is. So in that sense... We know we are way closer than we've ever been. Amen? Because we can now look at Scripture and we can say, well, that's already gone down. The Valley of Dry Bones, that's complete. Israel's back in the land. They're speaking their own language. We know that. They've been raised back up. So we're that much closer. So we know we're closer. How close are we? We can know the the seasons. 1 Thessalonians 5. Now, if you were outside today, if you were wearing a down parka, someone would think you were nuts, right? You wandered around in like an expedition parka with a tunnel hood, and you're like, you know, you got snow goggles on. People say, you are absolutely out of your mind. Why? Because it's the South Bay, it's summer, and it's hot outside. We know the season. Verse 1, 1 Thessalonians 5, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, I have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, when unbelievers say, peace and safety. Is that not the mantra that is going around? The world's a safer place. Peace and safety. No major war. We have regional con- Peace and safety. Then sudden destruction comes upon them as the labor pains of a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape 
But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. For you are the sons of light, the sons of day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. And therefore, let us not slumber. Let us not sleep. Sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But let, her, let those of us who are of the day be sober. Be wide awake, prepared, ready, working, watching, waiting. Putting on the breastplate of faith and love. The helmet of the hope of our salvation. Why? Because God hasn't appointed us under wrath. You don't have to worry about the tribulation. There's an appointment around, so you ought to be watching very carefully so that you know what season it is, so you can be really busy about people coming to Jesus. For he, Jesus our Lord, died for us, that whether we are awake or we sleep, in other words, whether we're alive or dead, we should live together with him. We know what season it is. We, We know that the timing of these things is imminent. Peter would give us the same basic picture, warned us that in the last days people would scoff at us, they would laugh at us, they would mock us. I get some interesting posts on our website, you know, when they go and watch videos, because all the freakazoid weirdos um, do go to our YouTube channel, and they watch, they leave little comments, and Peter graciously erases them for me sometimes, but... You know, there's a little selective editing there. But, you know, we we get some pretty crazy things that people send me. And I've had people send me the dates. I've had people send me the times. I've had people send me stuff on every manner of Jewish holiday and blood moon. And, I mean, I've gotten some stuff like you can't even believe. It's like, you got to do this, you got to do that. You better say this, you better say that. To me, those are the scoffers. Those are the people who don't look plainly at what Scripture says. And just take it for what it says. Second Peter 3, verse 3 through 7. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, in other words, their own desires, the things that they have dreamt up and thought up, saying, where is the promise of his coming? You're going to have those people who are, you know, the Lord, David. you know what? Look, when Hal Lindsey wrote Late Great Planet Earth, I read that book, I was petrified. I was like, man, Jesus is coming back tomorrow. And I, I thought to myself, man, I, I need to get, I went out and got more bumper stickers and everything. You know, it was like, I need to make sure that my car is marked in case he comes, you know. And, and then he didn't come. He hasn't come for 40 plus years now. But I know he is coming. And I know we are a lot closer scoffers will come. They'll say, hey, look, Al was wrong. I mean, you know, he, would, he had it. Thought, we thought we had it. It was like he was uh, next week. For since the fathers fell, fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Uh, there's, there is a sense that uniformitarian thinking is applicable, but he tells you the way that you understand that. For this they willy, willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens are old. In other words, there is a creator And there is a creation, and we know who the creator is. We just studied him. On Sunday, if you haven't, if you weren't here with us, get the, go in and watch it online. The earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world then existed perished. In other words, there was a great flood. The world was altered, forever altered, and you can see the evidence all over the globe of that flood. We'll be sharing some more as we get into the book of Romans. We're going to take some time in the first chapter of the book of Romans to Study this in depth. Being flooded by water. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment, perdition of ungodly men. In other words, God has a plan and a purpose to deal with mankind's sin issue once and for all. But it hasn't gotten here yet. And I I think we ought to be praising God it hasn't gotten here yet. Because I don't know how many billion people would perish if it happened tonight. It would be a bunch of billions. And so we have a lot of work to do, family of God. Jesus would say much the same thing in Matthew 24. We don't need to read it. You can read it later. Pick up there in verse 3 and read down through verse 8. Basically, Jesus said, many are going to come in that last day saying, look, I'm the Christ. 
And so the whole picture of that, as we read through the, the New Testament specifically, is that we know the Lord is going to come. And so he says these things in light of the first three verses. And in that, what he's really telling us is, look, you don't ever need to be thirsty again. You don't ever need to be thirsty again. You remember the story of the woman of the, at the well? That was Jacob's well. It was in Samaria. If you go there today, that's modern-day Nablus. It's in the West Bank. And Jacob's well is there. You can still go to the side of that well. But Jesus meets that, that woman at that well. And he answers and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. He points at the well and he says, look, as great as this well is, Jacob dug this well. The father, Israel himself, dug this well. Remember, his name was changed to Israel. The father of all the 12 tribes, he dug this well. But if you drink of the water that's down in the bottom of this hole, you're going to thirst again. That's what's going to happen to you. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him, her, it will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him. Do you see the picture? You have to get the water first through salvation, and then the water is actually in you, and you become a little mini spigot for the work of the Holy Spirit. You now have it in you. You can give it out of you. The Holy Spirit actually works through you then. So it's first on you, upon you, then it's in you, and then it's through you. That's how the Holy Spirit works. Epi, emi, para. You'll become a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And so that fountain... Can you imagine the cumulative work of all of the believers of all time when they get to heaven being with the Holy Spirit, the presence, the full presence of the Holy Spirit? Now you know why that river is flowing out of the throne of God. Everything that was before and hence in you is now flowing out of that one source because we're all there together. Jesus made that point very clear in John chapter 7, verse 37 to 39. On the last day of the great feast, Jesus cries out. He's on the steps of the temple. And, and, and they're, they're making this sacrifice, and, and they spill the water. And as the water spilled out on the temple steps, he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come after me. And so in that eternal state, the pure river of water, these first three verses remind us, will be flowing right out of the throne of God. So maybe you're one of those people that you've kind of, you, you've caught in like the edge of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Oh, you're saved, you know the Lord, but you've never really experienced that power of that infilling and then that outflow of the Holy, Holy Spirit. You're going to be able to bathe in the river of water. You're going to be able to dunk yourself in it. Right out of the throne of God. And then there also the tree of life. And remember we first saw that in the Garden of Eden. And and it's such a wonderful picture of how the Lord takes these things that are so broken. Because the the work of the Spirit is, is hindered in our world. Right now, we're the restraining force that's in this world. The Holy Spirit in you and I, the Holy Spirit in us, working out of us, is the restrainer of evil. That's one of the things the Holy Spirit does. You imagine how bad the world would get if there were no believers? Think about it. The Lord now has kind of opened up the back door to that tree of life because remember Adam and Eve were saying, well, look, I told you not, now you can't eat of it at all. So now that tree of life is there. So the eternal state that was originally desired for all of mankind is now available to everybody. So that tree producing its fruit. I love this next part because basically what happens is the curse, the original curse, gets reversed. And there will be no more, in verse 3, it says no more curse. But the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it. And his servant shall serve him and they shall see his face. You ever wanted to see the face of God? Oh, I have. Every once in a while I have some cool dreams. Sometimes I have apocalyptic ones. They're not so cool. But every once in a while, I have one of those ones where I'm like walking with the Lord. I don't know if you guys have those, but I, I do. I have those ones where I'm walking with God, and every time, I hate it, 
Every time in my dream I look up to see God, I can never see his face. Not once have I ever in my dream seen God's face. He's like messing with me. It's like, I'm like, oh, great, I'm gonna, this time I'm going to see God. But one day you're going to actually see him. Face to, can you imagine? I don't know if he's like Aslan. I don't know if Jesus is actually like that. It would be really cool if he was. I don't know. I think it's going to be so much greater than that we can't even describe it. But I know we're going to get to see the face of God. What Moses didn't get to see on the, on the mount is he's wandering around up there, hidden in the cracks so that he doesn't get destroyed by the glory of God. We're actually going to be able to not just see the backside of God pass by us. We're going to be able to look full in his wonderful face. Oh, man, glory. And his name shall be on their foreheads. Remember that you are priests unto God, right? The high priest's garment, part of the, part of the high priest's garment on the headband, the gold band, was holiness unto God. That's what it said. Now his name's actually going to be on there. I'm for Jesus. I, don't, I, you know, I think it's just going to have his name. Maybe it'll say Yahweh. I don't know. But I know this. We're going to be so identified with the Lord that we're going to actually bear his, his name on our foreheads. Amazing. There'll be no light there. There won't be a need. No lamp or no light of the sun for the Lord God gives them light. Can you imagine the light of God being our actual light? It shall reign forever and ever. Now, let me put this into perspective. And again, maybe you've never had this experience, but one of the places that you can do this is when you get to altitude. You go to the high Sierras and because all the smog's gone and you're up at altitude, the, the sunlight is so much more intense and, and you lay down on a rock in a meadow and that you like get rejuvenated from the rays of sun. Imagine if sunlight can do that to you. What would happen if you were actually bathed in the glory of God? No wonder we're going to live forever. The full glory of God shining on each one of us. Mind-boggling. And it won't be for like a couple of minutes. Like you take a, take a nap in the Sierras in a meadow someplace, you're going to wake up fried to a crisp. <laughs> like your flesh will be burnt. But here you're just going to have more glory on you. Waking up in the glory of God. No darkness. Any of you hate that first like 30 seconds that your eyes are open in the morning? And you get up, how many times you have... you. There's just that one little caster wheel on the corner of the bed that's underneath the bed frame, and somehow one toe goes on one side and one on the other because you can't quite see. You think you're awake, and it's like, <clears throat> ah. It's because there actually isn't any light. You think there is. You've woken up, and now your, your senses are being stimulated, but the glory of God will be your light forever and ever and ever and ever, and no physical problems, no death. Can't wait. The Lord's return is imminent, folks. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. He said to me, these words are faithful and true. In other words, they're faithful in the sense they will come to pass. And they're true in that they are 100% accurate. It is a foregone conclusion that what God has said is going to happen. And 100% of what he has said is going to happen. They're faithful and they are true. All according to the timing of God. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. And again, remember that shortly is in reference to eternity. Not shortly as in reference to right now, this very moment. We think of shortly relative to the time that we are in and the things that we know. This is in God's timing, his purpose. So he's talking about once these things begin to unfold, the very last days are launched, in other words, then in relationship to that period of time, everything will happen shortly. So from the rapture to this time for us will seem short. Behold, I am coming quickly. And I love that. And he uses a, the Greek word there as, as tache. It's, it, what it actually means is, is really 
quickly relative to only itself. In other words, it has no point of reference in other time or other uh, things that are going on. It's just quickly relative to itself when it begins. From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, you see the same story. You can trust God's word. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now notice that blessed is he who keeps it. In other words, it's like this. We are to be, therefore, doers of the word, not just hearers only. Because if we're just hearers, we do what? We deceive ourselves, right? Isn't that what James said? This is the same principle. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy. In other words, you look at it, you honor it as faithful, and you honor it as true, and you live by it. There's an awful lot of people that read their Bibles, they don't live by it. There are people that can quote you chapter and verse, and they do not live by it. Jesus is saying, the blessed person is the person who's a doer. Someone who hears those words and acts on them because they know they're faithful, they know they are true. Though we do not know when the Lord's going to come, we do know that that imminent return could happen at any moment. We we know that all the things that we go through in this life are short relative to eternity. And so we don't know when it is exactly going to take place, but we do know that it is going to take place. And once it begins to unfold, it's going to be super fast. That's why we need to be prepared. The New Testament is literally filled with passages of Scripture that remind us that the Lord is coming quickly. 1 Corinthians 1.7, I'm going to give you a few of these and you can look at the rest of them yourself. We are awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or in 1 Corinthians 16, it says it has the Aramaic word, Maranatha. That means come quickly, Lord. Philippians 3, when we just saw it, for our citizenship is in heaven, for which we eagerly await for the Savior. These things are all the same principle. The Lord is near. He's coming from heaven. We say these things by the word of the Lord. All those words to, to the church at Thessalonica that some of them we've already read tonight. We don't sleep. We're, we're not slumbering like other people do. Jude verse 21 reminds us that we're to be waiting anxiously for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ and eternal life. We need to be busy because he's coming soon. It should make us just absolutely thrilled with being able to do anything for the Lord. I was praying for the missions team where they left yesterday and and I'm just sitting there, I'm thinking, these guys could get raptured from India. It's like crazy. Is that not nuts to think? Now you're here. Maybe that bums you out because maybe your children are there or maybe your spouse is on that missions trip. But make no doubt, you're going to see them. You're going to meet up in the air. You're going to catch up with them. And, and from that type of a mindset, it'll happen instantaneously in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. A fraction of a nanosecond. Boom, gone. That's why we're waiting. We're waiting. I, I kind of I look at it, you know, there's, there's patient waiting. You know, we're supposed to wait patiently for the Lord to do things in our lives, you know, because he's at work doing things. This is one of those things I kind of wait impatiently on. It's like, Lord, could you come back today? If you're done, if you've saved everybody that's going to be saved, then please come back today. That would be good. Come back right now, in fact, if you want. And so he reminds us to read and rejoice, to read and heed. Verse 8, it says, And now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of an angel who showed me these things. And again, same picture that we saw back in chapter 19. He he falls down to worship the angel. he, He gets schooled again. And then he, that would be the angel, said to me, See that you do not do that. This is the second time that's happened. So for those that want to worship angels, those that want to worship saints, those that want to worship anything other than God himself, 
You've been reminded twice in a couple of chapters that we worship no one save the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? We worship the Lord. See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant. The angel actually goes so far as to say, I'm your fellow servant. I'm one of you. I'm a created being. And I've been put here to serve you specifically. Angels are to do God's bidding on this earth, really to serve mankind. They come alongside, they protect, they watch over. There's all kinds of things that Scripture tells us about them. We do not know a ton about angels, but what we do know is they're the servants of God, and they're here for our benefit. Do they have powers you don't? Yes. But they are created beings just like you are. And so we do not worship them. And of your brethren, the prophets. In other words, the angel puts himself in the same context as you as a created being and a prophet as a created being. Don't worship me. And of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. In other words, every saint that comes along and hears these things should worship God. Nothing and no one else. We don't worship church. We don't worship people. We worship God. We worship our Savior, the Lord. The angels are like us in that regard. They're worshiping too. They're going to join in in that heavenly choir, in fact. He goes on to say, look, verse 10, and he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is at hand. Do you remember what happened in Daniel chapter 12? Everybody remember that? Daniel was told in Old Testament times, about 550 or so years B.C., he was told, seal up the prophecies of this book, for they are not for this time. They were for a later time. We're in that later time. We passed through all of that history. 2,500 years of history have passed since Daniel was told, seal up the prophecies of the book. Because Messiah had not yet come, not yet been revealed. The plan of salvation had not yet been completed. These things that we now know because we can look back with hindsight, done, finished. We're living in that last period of time, the end of the age of grace. So we now need to read and heed these things. Read those words. Don't be afraid of them, but heed them. Get very busy about your father's business. I've had several opportunities, and I just want to share this with you, several opportunities the last couple of weeks to talk to people who have recently lost a loved one whom they felt like they didn't give that person the gospel. That they left this earth without them personally ever sharing the gospel with that loved one. Do not let that be you. You may start a family argument. You may cause those last weeks, months, days to have some form of difficulty, even misery on your part. But it is the gospel that leads unto salvation. Whom shall he send? Here am I. Isaiah said, send me. So tell them about Jesus. It's the chief reason that you're still on this earth is to tell people about Jesus so they can read and rejoice. We only get one chance at life, folks. Fairly strange verse, verse 11. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he who is filthy, let him be filthy still. But he who is righteous. Who's righteous? Anyone who's named the name of the Lord, right? It's not my righteousness, it's his righteousness. I get his righteousness. It's part of the deal. Salvation comes by grace and through faith. But what happens is I'm justified by that faith. And that Jesus' righteousness is put into my account. And my sins are espunged. So if there's anyone righteous, the only reason that you're righteous is because you have believed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you've been saved. So here is a picture of 
unrighteous and righteous. Notice there isn't any semi-pseudo-righteous. There's not any kind of holy dirt bags. There's no middle ground. There isn't kind of sort of almost nearly saved. There is saints and there are ain'ts. You're in or you're out. And you only get to make that choice while you are H-E-R-E here. People may not like that. Too narrow. Don't like that. Can't say that. Let him be righteous still. And he who is holy, let him be holy still. In other words, there's going to be sheep. There's going to be goats. There's going to be a broad way and a narrow way. The choice is yours. Because when you get to eternity, nothing can change. Think about it for a second. If eternity is perfect, God is perfect, right? And we're now in his eternity. We're in this eternal state. And that eternity is perfect. And we have been made perfect in Christ. So we're now in that perfect environment. It's going to be perfect. So thereby, you don't need to add anything to it. You don't need to take anything from it. It's perfect. So nothing can change, including the people who can get there. So this speaks very strongly against like the Mormon practice. The reason, if you go on, just, just so you know, most of those genealogical things that you can go online and fill those out, they're almost all backed by the Mormon church. Almost without exception. They hold the world's largest genealogical database, and there's a reason for that. They believe that you can pray people out of hell. Out of that terrestrial heaven. And you can pray them up a level or two. Your Bible says it is appointed unto man one time to die and then judgment. That's what Hebrews chapter 9 plainly states. The only decision you can make about your eternity, you make while you still have breath in your lungs. And so the whole concept of purgatory in the Catholic Church, also not biblical. It's not found anywhere in Scripture. There's no place that you get to go to and you stay there for a couple thousand years while you try and you know, work through the things that you did on this life. Read it, Hebrews 9. Just one time, that's it. You die once, and after this, it says very clearly, judgment. Not after this, well, you get to go someplace and wait it out and figure out another way, or your relatives can pray you out of there. Remember, that's the exact picture of Luke chapter 16. Well, why don't you just send somebody up there to pray for them, and maybe we can get out of here. No, you make that choice while you're alive. Today is the day of salvation. Do not forsake it. He's bringing our reward. Now, I, I, sometimes when I think of the, the Bema seat, when I think of that 2 Corinthians 5 passage there, verses 9 and 10, when I think of that, I almost feel like, nah, God shouldn't, there's just no way I should get any reward for anything that I've ever done here because it's all him. And in one sense, that's absolutely true. That just tells you how amazing the grace of God is. That not only would he reach us, not only would he save us, not only would he pay the price for our sin, not only would he offer faith to believe as a free gift to anyone who wants it, but then on top of that, anything you do for him, you get rewarded for. That's like, that's like the world's best deal, amen? That's what happens. For those good deeds done in this life, you're actually going to get rewarded for those things. Verse 12, verse 13, Behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. For I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first and the last. He's saying, look, I'm coming not just to bring you. I'm actually coming home to bless you and reward you and bring you into this amazing eternal state. It's not going to be some dull existence. Again, I I don't know how many of you have ever experienced award ceremonies. I've been to quite a few of them in my life. Athletic awards, all this kind of, you know, and you're you're sitting there and you're waiting for your name to be called and you're just like, oh great, I'm going to get an all-league thing or whatever, you know, kind of thing. 
I've done a few of them that are, you know, up there in the upper levels of those types of things, you know, Washington, Lincoln, Laurel for Leaders. Was, and you're sitting, I was actually with, the, with then Governor Reagan. I'm sitting at the same table with him, and he's going to, you know, come up. He's like right here. I'm like, yes, it's going to be awesome. He's going to speak. I'm going to be like, I'm going to get like some extra bonus points because I'm next to the governor. Imagine that you're going to hear God call your name. I just want to thank you for being faithful. All that time that you put in on that wretched planet. You see all those people over there? They're here because you spoke my name. I'm a crown. I, I know what my natural response will be is what scripture says we're going to do. He's going to put them on. We're going to take them off and throw them right back at his feet. But he's still going to call your name. And you're going to hear him say, well done. Praise the Lord for his goodness to us, that he would reward us for those works that we do while we're here. And we don't get rewarded for the things we're supposed to do. We're rewarded for the things that we do that cost us something. Those things where you you suffered. You see, there's the fellowship of suffering. Where you went out of your way. Not because you had a couple of breaths after you got saved. But because you shared with that one person that would not have otherwise heard the gospel. Your reward will be in the hand. And and the whole of the Trinity will be there at that award ceremony. It's going to be awesome. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All three persons. Pouring out that reward. But it's all up to you right now. It's up to me right now, 14 and 15. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to see the tree of life. You see, it's up to you. You have to choose this day whom you're going to serve. And may enter through the gates into the city. For outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters. And whoever loves and practices a lie. The very last sin mentioned in scripture is liars. You might think it would be something else. But what he's saying is, look, you have a choice. You get to choose. Blessings to those who enter in. Blessings to those who have believed and received. Or you can keep what you already have. Which isn't all that good. It's up to you. It's up to me. In that sense, when you think about it, Jesus goes on to say, and I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you of these things in the churches. In other words, as John's receiving this vision, the angel's speaking, and John's writing these things down. He says, I've told you these things so that the church can get this message. It's now up to you. The message has been delivered. Here in this church, it's taken a year and a half, but the message has been delivered. I am the root. He is the netzer. He's the branch. He is the stump, exactly as the book of Genesis reminds us of the root of Jesse. Exactly what the prophet said Jesus was. He was the stump of the root of Jesse. He also is the offspring of David, thereby he is entitled to sit on David's throne. Isn't that amazing? That the lineage of David was protected in the genealogies of your Bible. That we can trace the lineage of David all the way back to the beginning. And he is the bright and the morning star. So you have him here as the Messiah. You have him here as the King of Kings. You have him here as the eternal God. It's up to you. You can receive that even tonight. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. So the Holy Spirit, which has been drawing mankind since the beginning, and the bride, the church, are all saying the same thing. Come to Jesus. Let's have a come to Jesus meeting. And whoever hears... Say, come, and let him who thirsts come, and whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Notice there's no hindrance. 
You know, the message now to the church is, because we can still read these words, it's up to you. All you need to do is come. It's the same message of Isaiah 55. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Isaiah 55. Isaiah wrote those words almost 700 years before Jesus was born. Come. The plan's perfect just as it is. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book that if anyone adds to these things, he's talking about the full testimony of the word of God, not just the book of Revelation. Because God is perfect and all that God has said is eternally perfect. So everything he said is perfect and right and just and true. The plan of salvation, which is by grace through faith that we're saved. It's true. If anyone adds to these things, then God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. That's why it is a very, 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 very dangerous thing to have another testament of Jesus Christ. That's why it's a very dangerous thing to have the New World translation of the Bible because it clearly adds to and subtracts from what God has already said. The Lord has a special hatred for that sin. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy. God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. You don't think that God isn't serious about the teaching of cults? You don't think that God isn't serious about those people who say, well, I've got a a, a new translation. I've got a new meaning. I've got a new testament of Jesus Christ. Some of the most deceived people on the face of the earth. Because they actually think they have a new revelation. And God said they don't have a new revelation. That that came from the enemy. God was right the first time. And in that group, I just got to tell you, that's Jehovah's Witnesses. That's Mormons. That's the Church of Scientology. That's Unitarians. That's Roman Catholics in places. Any church that denies the inerrancy of God's word and the plain teaching thereof is in grave danger of that particular judgment. People say, well, you know, I don't know about the Catholic church. Well, I do. Requiring bishops to be unmarried when it plainly says that a bishop shall be the husband of but one wife. So at the very least, it's certainly not wrong for a Catholic priest to be married, and yet it is wrong. That's heresy. And it's produced the problem of pedophilia within the church. So yes, I'm calling that sin out. Because God said, don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. Just do what it says. It's perfect as it is. And thus, our journey ends, verses 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things says, Surely, the words of Jesus, I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen and amen. And amen. And tonight we shout, Maranatha. Amen. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Would you stand with me? Worship team's going to come back up, and we've run over a little bit on time, but I do absolutely want to afford an opportunity for anyone here tonight that wants to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so, I would ask that you would bow your heads.
close your eyes. And tonight, you're here and you've been playing around. You've never taken time to hear those words as truth. You've believed you've got your whole life to think about these things. And maybe sometime when you get a little older, when there's not much left to do, that you might have a relationship with God. I want to tell you tonight, brother, sister, you may not have tomorrow. And that's not because I don't want you to have tomorrow. That's what the Bible says. Tomorrow is promised to no one. And so believers, with your heads bowed, if there's anyone here tonight and you'd like to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, simply just ask you to put your hand up and you raise your hand right where you're standing. Nobody's looking. Nobody's wandering around. Nobody's staring anywhere. They're just simply praying for you. I'll give you a couple of seconds. Father, we thank you that tonight we who are all here by our lack of hands profess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Heavenly Father, we thank you that the world uh, was given the opportunity to be saved because you sent your only Son into this world to die for us. And that's the gospel message that we can have a right relationship with you because of the blood of your own son that was shed on Calvary's cross. And we believe that truth. And so, Lord, we thank you and we praise you for that truth. And we pray tonight that you would make us a body that has so much anticipation of that trumpet sounding that we can do nothing but serve you with the whole heart. And so use us for your glory. Cause us to be emissaries of your truth. Would you move in this place, Lord, to cause us to do great things for your kingdom? We ask these things in the name of Jesus and God's people all said, Amen. Amen. Amen.